Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up for the Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Wayne and Michael, you have declared your consent and vows before God and this gathering of family and friends. When my identity as a gay man and my identity as a Christian came together, I was changed and my world has never been the same. I call on the more than 1,100 clergy to perform marriages among same-sex couples and to do so in the normal course of their pastoral duties. Real love accepts people as they are, with room for who they may become. But if we can change teaching around the gay issue, it'll show that Christians don't have a literal interpretation of scripture, and it's not meant to be interpreted on a literal basis. We have to use metaphor and understanding. That we can also then judge other aspects of life through that, uh, um, not liberal, but more intelligent interpretation. And it'll show that Christians and churches can learn and adapt. Wherever we are, the United Methodist Church continues and allows people to feel their calling that God has put on their heart, no matter whom they love. Welcome to the podcast. Those are some of the lies we are going to discuss today and refute on Stand Up For The Truth with our guest, M.D. Perkins, the author of Dangerous Affirmation, The Threat of Gay Christianity. So I'm looking at a photo of a rainbow-colored White House last week. They did it again. That's right. Um, The Obama-Biden White House did it, and now the Biden White House did it, the Biden-Harris White House, when he, Joe Biden, uh, signed into law the same-sex marriage bill, the Disrespect for Marriage Act, called the Respect for Marriage Act, And we're going to see how it's going to affect the church coming down the road. So I'm looking at the Rainbow White House, and I wonder how other countries perceive us. Um, They're thinking all of America is gay, um, and that's for another conversation. So we're going to talk about these things and how you, as a Christian in this culture today that has fallen away from God and has rejected the truth, how you can respond to some of these arguments, these lies, these talking points when you hear them, in your life, in society. So before we do that, uh, hi, Mary. Good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Um, we've got a couple letters here just briefly. Uh, thank you, Kathleen, uh, from Marietta, California. She's thankful for our ministry, and um, we are based near Green Bay, Wisconsin, as most of you know. Uh, let's read one from Lori from Helena, Montana. She said, I first discovered your podcast after reading your book, Redefining Truth, in 2017. I've been listening daily ever since. Wow. And you helped keep me sane during the 2020 COVID craziness. Thanks for all you do. Keep fighting the good fight. God bless you, Lori. And a shout out to Montana. So let's uh, jump into this topic, friends. Uh, Dangerous affirmation. I want to introduce to you M.D. Perkins. He's a research fellow of church and culture at American Family Association. And since uh, joining AFA in 2014, His primary role has been with American Family Studios, where he has written, produced, and directed a number of documentaries. I want to talk a little bit about that as well. But his new book, which I actually read an article to his on this topic before I found out about him. The article was called Drag Queens and the Queering of the Church. And then it directed me to this book, Dangerous Affirmation. So we're going to get to that. Good morning, M.D. Perkins. Welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. Thanks. Good to be with you, David and Mary. Good to hear your voices. Yes, really good connection. You're in Mississippi. We're in Wisconsin. It's amazing what technology can do when it's used for good. Um, How did you get connected with American Family Association? Well, I actually grew up here in Tupelo, Mississippi, which is where (laughs) AFA is founded. Uh, So I knew about the ministry. My parents were supporters. And then I went off to film school and studied film and television production. And I bounced around the independent film industry for a while. Anyway, my wife and I and our our children moved up to to Tupelo, and uh, got connected with uh, with what they were doing here because they had a new film division that was doing a lot of video uh, production pieces, and I had an interest in doing theologically minded projects. And so we got started, and um, 
the the God Who Speaks, which released in 2018, was kind of our our first my first big project um, to to fully take on as a producer and director uh, in that. And then uh, the In His Image project was um, that deals with gender and sexuality. That was uh, that was our follow up to that. So anyway, uh, I got connected to AFA, which is a long you know a long standing pro family ministry right. uh, founded in 1977. Okay. So um, yeah, it's been a joy to be a part of AFA. I really love the people here, and uh, the leadership is trustworthy, and it's a good place to work. Praise God for that, and shout out to uh, you know the the Wildman family, um, mm-hmm. Don, and yeah. now Tim, and all the the um, just the the work that they've done through the years for the family, for the faith. And um, interesting, we had Laura Perry on this podcast several times. Uh, of course, oh, if, yeah. if you guys don't know, she's a former transgender, and she was featured in that documentary, In His Image, which we have pointed people to for a couple years now. And we had her and her husband on with us, uh, Perry. Uh, it's, it was just an amazing interview. I think it was the oh, first yeah. they did after they got married. and because it Maybe, MD, you can speak to this, because it doesn't always work out this way for someone who has gone through the hormones or who's went, gone through the trans surgeries, the cosmetic surgeries, the physical yeah. mutilation, it doesn't always work out where they end up with a happy story. Now, she can't have children because of her surgeries, but uh, she is married, and they are just, just beaming, and they're both believers. So share a little bit about that, uh, if you would. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the kinds of things that someone takes on their body when they embrace the whole trans ideology uh, and then obviously the identity components that go along with that it has long standing ramifications on your life and so you've heard some of these stories i'm sure you've highlighted some on your programs over the years people who have detransitioned or had initially transitioned to become the opposite sex and then face some kind of regret whether that was spiritually motivated or not the 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 end result was that they wanted to go back to the sex that they were originally born as mm. and um the process for going back is not easy mm. and many people find a lot of discouragement and despair in that because of the hormones that they've they've taken on which changed a lot of the chemical makeup of their body and then of course you know like you mentioned the surgeries and things that you you do now not everybody does all of those steps you know there's a there's a long list of things that somebody goes through but as as Laura Perry describes in the movie it was always like this carrot that kept being dangled out there mm-hmm. that if you did this next thing then you would be fulfilled and happy mm-hmm. and and satisfied with your choice uh, to become a man as she was a woman. Mm. And, uh, you know, but that just doesn't happen because God actually made us, God has an intention behind creating us either male or female and has designs for our, for our life and mm-hmm. for his will for us in that. Amen. And so when we live in, in the fullness of what God intends for us there, there is happiness and satisfaction. And so it's just, you know, Laura's become a personal friend through this project. I'm just mm-hmm. so happy for her mm-hmm. and her husband. And uh, it's such a sweet thing to see the Lord um, restore um, restore to her that joy and yes. happiness, you know, as she describes being so depressed and mm-hmm. overwhelmed with grief and angst and frustration, you know, to, to find rest in Christ, yes. to find joy in the Lord, and then on top of that to find a spouse to spend her her life with and to have joys and uh, and and uh, fellowship with is just such a sweet thing. Mm-hmm. What a blessing! I know they're going to have a very special Christmas, um, yeah. I, and I can really just imagine. Um, uh, Mary, you want to share anything? Or yeah, ask yeah. You know, I was I was uh, MD. I was looking through your book, and um, at the very beginning, you say, "How did we get here?" Boy, isn't that the million dollar question? <laughs> you know, having been in the church as long as I have, I. I ask myself that, too. And you have five central ways in your book in which gay Christianity is impacting the church. Rethinking theology, rethinking the Bible, rethinking the church, rethinking identity, and then also the activism aspect. And I think a lot of believers very naively think that this is just a simple pushback against, you know, traditional values, or it's just only about who you love. But for me, this is, you know, emergent postmodern theology uh, come home to roost. I mean, What's the end game here? Is there an end game? Because once the church now embraces this postmodern, no authority, no true theology, where does this all end? Because I think this is actually fruit after so many years of that kind of thinking. Where, where does this all end, MD, in the church? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an excellent 
su- summary of the issues. And so I, I see that there's two end games. One is spiritual, and one is is kind of physically embodied within the culture. Hmm. I mean, obviously, we have we have a great spiritual enemy behind all of this, mm-hmm. and so his end game is to destroy souls and to mm-hmm. keep people in bondage mm-hmm. and to limit the church's witness and to de- destroy. Um, their ability to speak confidently and truthfully about Christ or about the truth of the scriptures or about what it means to be, to follow the Lord and all of that stuff. So there's that spiritual component behind it. We can never lose sight of that as Christians. There's a lot of conversation about things in the culture. Of course, we need to address those things, but always understand the spiritual implications and the spiritual danger and warfare that's behind and underneath all of this stuff. But on the what would be like the the end goal of the agenda, so to speak? Uh, well, the end goal of the agenda, ultimately, um, you know, it's the last chapter of my book, is to create activists within the church, mm, or wow. to allow to to silence Christian witness to the point where gay activism can basically run rampant and accomplish mm-hmm. all of its purposes. Mm. Uh, because remember, like we're talking about when we're talking about the left and we're talking about people who've embraced these progressive ideas. We're talking about people who are forsaking Christ and forsaking scriptural truth. Yes. And so what is their ultimate authority? What is their ultimate um, God? Well, it's, it's to be, it, it's government, it's politics, it's to be able to enact what you want to see happen in society, in society with as much uh, effectiveness as possible. So it all comes back to that political angle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the real revelations for me in writing the book is, you know, you can talk about the theology, but if you don't address some of the political aspects of this, then you're, you're missing how, how some of this is coming into the church as well as what the end, the end hope is and what will the church do. Well, you want to create, uh, you want to limit the church's standing against some of these things politically, and you want to enable the church to then become a, a facet of gay activism within society. And so that's that's kind of the end game as far as I see it. There's mm-hmm. that spiritual side, but then mm-hmm. there's that political agenda. Yep. When you talk about you know keep, keeping people in bondage, and isn't that what this identity stuff is all about? You create a new identity, you have your new pronouns, you have all this. Now you're locked in to the bondage. I mean, it's so insidious, it's so wicked, people getting locked into the bondage of this through... An alternate identity, um, which is also political. Um, so, and anyway, yeah, and th- yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, that the identity component is part of what makes this whole discussion of homosexuality uh, so challenging for us. Because, you know, when you're talking about things like other sins, you know, to be a thief, you know, that's not an identity label. That's just a description of, of the behavior that you've, you've engaged in. But when people are talking about being gay or being a homosexual, being bisexual, being pansexual, whatever, um, you're taking on an identity label. And so to even challenge that is now to, to challenge somebody at what they see as the core of their being. And so these attractions and desires are somehow now being described as fundamentally who a person is. And so to even challenge that with Scripture is to, to present a very, uh, a very offensive take on who somebody is envisioning themselves to be. And that's something that is, is going to create even more challenges for us as Christians as we try to address this. And you can already see the ways that, uh, that many of these conversations can kind of derail mm. because... Because that we're talking about, oftentimes Christians think of homosexuality as purely a behavior. You know, you're engaging in homosexual acts. You, you, you are in a homosexual relationship. But there's a whole identity and cultural component that goes along with it, that if you don't see that, you're not fully able to, to engage in that conversation as meaningfully as you would want to, and also to be able to, to I guess, remove some of the obstacles towards someone understanding, uh, you know, what the Christian position truly is. So, friends, we're speaking with M.D. Perkins of American Family Association. The book is called Dangerous Affirmation. And another one of our guests we've had on a couple times, uh, Stephen Black, wrote the foreword to the book. And uh, he's been a blessing to have on Love His Ministry, former homosexual. And um, I just want to read part of the description and have you uh, follow through with the answer to what is gay Christianity. You say, or the book description says, since 1968, the LGBT movement has made significant inroads into the Christian church. 
The affirming church movement has become mainstream through the erosion of mainline denominations. Queer theology has taken hold in many academic settings. The emergence of gay celibate theology is causing confusion in evangelical churches through its appeal to modern psychology and LGBT lived experience. How did we get here and what does the Bible say about all this? So, M.D. Perkins, let's go back to, let's define some terms. How did we get gay Christianity? Yeah, the the term gay Christianity I'm using as as a as a big broad catch-all term for the attempt and the desire to reconcile the Christian faith with homosexuality. Now, there's a number of ways that that can happen uh, because when we're talking about homosexuality, obviously we're talking about as I was alluding to earlier, you're talking about more than just behavior. You're mm-hmm. also talking about attractions. You're talking about what people have ensconced in this idea of orientation. And so you're dealing with, with those kinds of aspects. This is this state and immutable, which is what people are claiming. Uh, you're talking about aspects of identity, culture, politics, activism. All of those kinds of things are included within that idea of what it means to be gay. Well, when it comes to Christianity, you're talking about the the established beliefs, practices, and values rooted in Scripture that have been handed down and define the church and her worship and practice mm-hmm. for millennia now. And so those two things are at odds, and it was always recognized as being at odds until about 50 or 60 years ago when there were attempts to try and um, – when after uh, there were initially there were uh, embracing uh, forms of gay activism and homosexuality within the culture, and then there became questions of well, uh, how can how can Christians rethink uh, aspects of this? So gay Christianity is just the big way that I'm using to describe this overall attempt to reconcile two things that are ultimately irreconcilable. Mm-hmm. And, yes. um, you know, I divide those into three categories that we can talk about more if you'd like. Yes. Didn't one of the quotes um, that we played, one of the uh, audio clips, that was from the American Family Association website, the page for your book, Dangerous Affirmation. There was a video, a uh, two-minute video. You, you appear in it. You share a few things. But we took some of those audio clips. These are some of the arguments. These are some of the talking points. And that one gentleman said... Some, I'm paraphrasing, and you can follow through here and elaborate. He said, if you can change the language, you can get Christians to admit the Bible is not literal. Now, you can follow up on that because I may not have got it exactly right, but that's part of what they're thinking. Just get Christians to back down. Yeah, th- that clip was particularly interesting because it highlights ultimately what the real opposition is to the gay agenda, and it's the Scripture. Mm. You know, so there has to be a rethinking of the Bible, a recasting of Scripture, and people have done that in all kinds of different ways. Initially, it was just to kind of poke some questions or say, well, we can't really know for sure, you know, certain things. We can't really know for sure what the Bible taught about this, or Jesus didn't really say anything about homosexuality. So Did God really say... Exactly. Yeah, it sounds a lot like Genesis three. Yes, it? yes. And uh, that's so. You know, that clip was just so transparent in its mm-hmm. uh, in its spiritual defiance. You know, to talk about for him, the the ultimate goal would be to get Christians to adjust this, not just to make a nicer society, but to ultimately get Christians away from holding to the Bible too heavily and too rigidly, and to admit that, you know, they don't really hold the Bible in this way anyway, he's saying, you know, we we don't all hold uh, the Bible to be literal, and of course, like, that's that's a straw man that he's presenting there, Uh, but it's it's something that is very effective, um, especially for people who are just kind of on the edges watching this conversation or for your children who are, who are, um, you know, at college age or starting to think independently and start to, to think, well, you know, I've got gay friends at school and I don't, I don't, I'm kind of uncomfortable by certain things in the Bible. And so this seems like an agreeable way that you can still hold the parts of Christianity and Christian faith. You don't have to jettison the whole thing, just jettison some of the fundamental aspects of it to make it more agreeable socially. Yeah, we're speaking with M.D. Perkins, Research Fellow of Church and Culture for the American Family Association. We've got a lot more to come. Uh, we'll kick it off with a quote from Francis Schaeffer. We'll talk a little bit more about the lack of political involvement in the church, and that's been part of this problem because they 
politics influences legislation. And more on this topic when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest is M.D. Perkins, and we are talking about an amazing book here, Dangerous Affirmation. I just want to share a quote within the first pages of the book from Francis Schaeffer. He said, Make no mistake, we as Bible-believing evangelical Christians are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life-and-death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. I'll stop right there and let us just digest that. We are in a battle, friends. We, it's easy to avoid it. It's easy to ignore there's a war on truth and there's an agenda against God um, because we have busy lives and we get distracted so easily. But we, we have to stand up for the truth, and that's why we have this podcast and we have topics like this discussed. Mary? Uh, yeah, you know, the thing that really uh, strikes me about uh, this particular movement within the church is the activism aspect. You know, um, they insist on being part of the church, even though it represents everything that they despise. Well, I was reading Genesis 19 over again, um, and one particular verse here, I think it's verse 10, they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. The church door has been <laughs> broken down too, and, yeah. right? Um, you know, why? <laughs> it's funny because my just thinking this through, in a bit of an alternate reality, why aren't murderers and rapists insisting on being accepted by the church? Why are not they being activists for their sin? There's no such thing as homicide Christians. And yet this particular sin uh, just brings out the, the you know, if you don't accept me, you're a bigot. Other other sins don't go before you like that. You know, if you don't accept the fact that I'm a murderer, you're a bigot. Mm-hmm. What is it, MD, about this particular uh, activism, this particular sin, you know, we tend to say on a, on a basic level, well, sin is sin. Apparently it is not. Um, <laughs> you know, and I know you have a bit of a chapter on that. What is it about this particular sin that seems to require that everyone agree, that everyone be involved, that everyone identify? What, can you, can you address that? Yeah. Well, the, fundamentally the issue is that identity component, like we were talking about earlier. The fact that um, someone isn't just engaging in certain kinds of behaviors or thinking a certain way, it is that they believe that they are fundamentally a certain kind of person, Mm. i.e. a homosexual or gay or bisexual or pansexual, that these uh, orientations are held up as fundamentally a part of who you are, that it is innate, that means you're born that way, and that it's immutable, that means you can't change. And so with that, um, it that's that's what fuels so much of this activism. And, you know, to go back uh, in history to the the later part of of the 19th century, this is when the, the word homosexuality first was coined. Mm-hmm. Because initially, before this time, I mean, we spoke in terms of sodomy, you know, the actual action mm-hmm. that was taking place uh, physically. Uh, but but there was a recognition among some early, um, or some, there was a there was a guy who was a lawyer in Prussia, in in Germany, and he wanted to uh, diminish the sodomy laws that existed in Prussia at that point. And so part of what he did was he he devised this term of homosexuality to describe an inner sensibility. Hmm. Well, now you know you can. You can legislate behavior. You know, you can say, do not do this, and if we catch you doing that, then, then you have committed a crime. But if you, if you hmm. describe it as something that's internal, that is a sensibility and a feeling and a desire, well, now it is not legislatable in the same way. And so that's what happened, is the, the term homosexuality was coined as a way to try and remove the sodomy laws from Prussia, and that's that kind of idea of, of homosexual orientation and identity is is now being uh, ensconced in law at multiple different yes. points. Mm-hmm. It goes through Freud. It goes through Alfred Kinsey. Oh, yep. And by the time you get to America in in the 70s, um, the, uh, the American Psychological Association is removing homosexuality from being considered uh, a mental disorder and a pathology. Um, and that was a very activist push as well. And so I cover that history in the book. But that's ultimately is that, that identity component 
that is that sets homosexuality apart from some of these other sins that we we might talk about. That's right. We we actually did a podcast a while back on Alfred Kinsey. We forget about mm. his demonic influence and how oh, he goodness. was yeah. actually a, a pedophile. Um, and he's he's halted as a hero at Indiana University. They gave him a bronze statue earlier this year. Um, you mentioned the born that way theology in a way you mentioned that because if they if they can make it about you know a person and not about a behavior then you can defend that but it's harder to defend a behavior when it hurts other people so uh, explain how we got here and you also allude to the 1960s uh in the book as a turning point yeah yeah the the whole born that way idea has been this this um really homosexuality has always needed a way to be explained in order to make it more palatable to the average person in society. And so when we're talking about things like sexual orientation, w embedded within that orientation idea is this concept of being born that way. And uh, even though some people might argue for a developmental model or whatever, um, but there's been no scientific evidence to prove that there is a gay gene or that um, that genetically that there's any any predisposition toward toward certain kinds of sexual behavior uh, as opposed to others um at, at birth so anyway that that whole thing is a, is a misnomer but it's also it also has to exist to create a civil rights category mm. you know if you can create a category of people who say i'm fundamentally this way <laughs> then now you have to now you have a group that you can safeguard and you can hold up and that's what some of these recent legislations uh including the the disrespect for marriage act which yes. you're talking about i mean that's what it's doing is mm -hmm. it's ensconcing in, in law and in legal language and political ideology um fundamentally that sexual orientation and gender identity, by the way, which is however someone perceives themselves internally. So these are things that you can look on the surface. You can't judge whether someone is or isn't a homosexual by looking at them. You know, you can't judge that someone uh, identifies a certain gender way through just you know, basic appearance, you know, there's no objective measurement. It's all what someone says is their experience or their ideology or their identity. Amazing. So, I mean, it, you've created these categories that, uh, that are now enshrined and protected in law. And, uh, and that, that really is the ultimate goal. As I was talking about, you know, the development of the term homosexuality, having this political bent, well, there's this civil rights component to this whole orientation narrative. So you talk about affirming theology, and you define that. What is queer theology? Um, I, when I think of queer, I think of drag queen, uh, drag queen story hour. That has taken over our public libraries, our public schools. It's absolutely astonishing. I think our great-grandparents would be, wait, what, what are you allowing to happen in your, in your culture, in your country? I mean, they would flip. So just walk us through a couple points that you want to uh, bring out about the book, uh, Dangerous Affirmation. Yeah, the, the book um, takes that overall idea of gay Christianity and breaks it down into three components, two of which are affirming theology and queer theology. Mm -hmm. There's also gay celibate theology, which is a whole separate um, <laughs> issue within conservative churches, but affirming theology is what most people would think of. When you say gay Christianity, they think of the pride flag in front of the church, uh, we're welcoming and affirming congregation, that kind of language. Um, and that's, that's the mainstream view on, uh, on homosexuality as Christians should relate to it. Um, but there is an academic um, edge that is embodied within ideas in queer theology. Um, and finds its basis in queer theory. So basically, this is a pushing of the envelope. So uh, of course, it's affirming. Ultimately, it's gay affirming in its in its ideas, but it's not trying to make any kind of biblical case. That's what affirming theology was trying to do. It's trying to say, well, you just didn't understand the Apostle Paul, or basically, the love ethic of the Bible means that you have to affirm and accept homosexuality because. Uh, Paul didn't understand that there could be gay, monogamous, loving, giving relationships because he only saw a kind of exploitative, um, wrong version of homosexuality in his day. But we have better things now, so therefore we can have we can we can say that the Bible is gay affirming. That's the the gay affirming um, theology side. Well, queer theology 
basically like wants to push the envelope as far as possible to create this um this ability to be accepted more. So mm-hmm. for an example, a guy makes this comment that promiscuity is basically like being hospitable with your body. Now that idea oh my obviously is not a biblical <laughs> argument. It's yeah. just this shocking statement yep. that he's, he's justifying promiscuity. He's, he's loosely using the scripture, but really the point of that is to shock you as a conservative straight laced listener and to, to make you go, Oh, like that, kind of makes me feel icky and um but it the whole point of it is just to kind of shock and dismantle it's this whole Mm -hmm. kind of strategy uh, this intellectual strategy that academics use to try and push the envelope you know people talk about the overton window i don't know if you know that concept but basically if there's something that's further down the line it, it creates a an acceptance in the middle vein um, that moves further down toward that direction not as far as the most extreme versions of it but it makes uh, it makes um, other pieces of that more acceptable to the average person. Yeah, I think about the wearing down of the culture, um, movies and television. Oh. Uh, they've been pushing that envelope, years. and that is the best phrase here, for years and years and years. And and so it used to be whether you'd have one gay character in, in a show, Will and Grace or whatever, and that was the uh, that was aberrant. Now it's constant. In every single, you come to expect it. And so th- I think the wearing down of, of all this is also part of uh, it coming into the church. People see it as acceptable or they, you know, that's what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're just pushing and pushing, whether the show get, gets canceled or the movie tanks, that doesn't matter to them. It's all in what they have left you with, the impression they have left you with uh, to make sure that now your defenses are being worn down. And so I see the church's defenses are being worn down because mm-hmm. the church is too much like the world these days. Well, we're, we, yeah, we're conforming to the world, but we are also, in a way, asleep at the wheel mm-hmm. for uh, several decades, if if not more. Uh, your thoughts on that, MD? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's part of the issue here. I mean, think back twenty five years ago in April was the was the show in which Ellen comes out of the closet. <laughs> yes. on, on national yep. television. I remember. Yep. Yes, you know that that twenty fifth anniversary was earlier this year because that was August, uh, April of nineteen ninety seven. So that was the first major gay character mm-hmm. on network television at that point. Well, at this point, you know, you flip on the television, it, there's at least one or two major gay characters, and then not to mention all the other platforms that exist out there. So, yeah, I mean, the cumulative effect on my generation and the generations after me is that you just grow up with this kind of normalized sense that yes. there's just gay people everywhere mm-hmm. and that this mm-hmm. is just a normal part of life, and you just – like these backwards Christians need to like update their theology because uh, these people are everywhere and you're just being so mean and harsh in your statements against them. And so, you know, you really need to get with the times and that's the implications that are, that are happening that the Christians really need to be aware of. I mean, I mean the, the culture has adopted so much of this. And of course the godless culture is going to reflect that godless ideologies, but how much are you imbibing of that? And how much is that shaping your own worldview and principles and uh, ways of thinking about things? So, I mean, Christians really need to be mindful of that. Oh, my goodness. Um, when you mentioned the, the, the anniversary of Ellen coming out, I can go back further. I remember, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> the first gay character on a little uh, nighttime show called Soap. And Billy Crystal played a, I think it was a ventriloquist. Or no, no, he had a, there was another character on the show that was a ventriloquist, but he was on this show called Soap. That was in the late 70s when there was a gay character. And then at, through the years, they introduced more gay characters and normalized, very important word, M.D. Perkins, they normalized the people, the behavior. They, they said, in fact, some of the activists that wrote a book back in the 80s about the gay agenda, here's how we take over culture, said, say gay as much as you possibly can, wear people out with the word gay mm-hmm. so that it's secondhand, it's mm-hmm. no big deal. And they've done that. And I just want to point to the American Psychiatric Association, which I believe in 1973, they used to define mm-hmm. homosexuality as a disorder, and then the pressure was put on them to remove that. So your thoughts on what the power that they have, and by the way, they are less than 3 or 4% of the American population, but look how powerful they are. Right, and and 
people might have the tendency now to just think, well, that's just a natural progression. But that happened with with very specific activism. I mean, there was a gay and lesbian media task force group that existed Mm -hmm. in New York and Los Angeles that was specifically there to help monitor and encourage producers to include gays and lesbian characters on their show and to present homosexuality from a favorable or neutral position initially and then more and more favorable as things went on. And so like this isn't just this isn't just the natural progression of things. This is people who have taken up a very specific targeted agenda to try and enact to create acceptance that has long-standing repercussions across the culture that are still resonating today. M.D. Perkins, Dangerous Affirmation. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have another uh, 15, 20 minutes to stay with us? Oh, yeah. Great. Awesome. Because this is there's so much that we can cover here, I believe. Um, Could you give us the website for the book again? Yes, DangerousAffirmation.net. This book is not available on Amazon, so if you want a copy, please go to DangerousAffirmation.net, and you'll be connected to the AFA Resource Center, which is our ministry's uh, online store, and so you can get it through there. DangerousAffirmation.net, DangerousAffirmation.net. We've got two minutes left. Um, We're going to talk in the next segment about the uh, report that I pulled up at AFA.net on the anti-church hostility that's on the rise. And this is a little different, but yet it is against the biblical worldview, not specifically because we are, you know, preaching that homosexuality is a sin. It's just because we are Christians and believe in God and truth. We'll talk a little bit about that, but your brief thoughts on how dictionaries are changing words and meanings now. Let's, let's talk about the definition of woman. Just your brief thoughts, MD. Always pay attention to the way that language is changing because that is a very specific part of this whole argument, debate, and social movement. If you can change the language, then you can control how people think about something. You know, even that movement from from, uh, sodomy to homosexuality, and then the movement from homosexuality to gay, those are very specific word choices and movements that have implications to how people think about these topics. So, I mean, that's not something to just lightly dismiss. Those are actually parts of the overall agenda. That's right. And we are going to take our final break and we'll come back with MD Perkins again. You can get the book at dangerousaffirmation.net. We also highly recommend you check out the American Family Association, AFA.net. So I thought it was really funny and I'm just going to end this segment on this uh, light note. And some of you love the Babylon Bee. <laughs> I'm a fan of the Bee. So we just talked about this headline that Cambridge Dictionary bows to woke activists changes definition of woman. Over at the Babylon Bee, new headline, Cambridge Dictionary changes the definition of definition. (laughs) I just got a kick out of that. Well, Merry Christmas season to you guys. We've got a lot more coming up in our final segment with M.D. Perkins of American Family Association when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest is M.D. Perkins, the author of DangerousAffirmation.net. You can go to the website. So let's go back to the 60s. We talk, We went all the way back to, I mean, we didn't mention Margaret Sanger on this podcast, but she was a socialist, atheist, Marxist, and she was a feminist, a radical feminist who birthed or coined the term birth control and founded Planned Parenthood and the liberation of women. I remember on one of the covers of her uh, birth control review, there was a woman on her knees with a ball and chain, and the the, the ball, it said, uh, baby. Um, so that was the idea she was promoting. And of course, abortion is what she is famous for. Um, let's bring it up to the 1960s. We know things changed radically in America. I mean, just look at our public schools. That's when God was removed. Prayer was removed. The Bible reading was removed in the 1960s. But then it brought the sexual revolution. MD, that was impactful on not only the the culture, but the church. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, the the sexual revolution still has longstanding ramifications on how people think about things in society regarding sexuality. Um, You know, you mentioned 
uh, abortion and birth control ideas. And the, the idea, you know, there was actually these commissions that even existed at that point of population control was a was a major hot button topic within the 60s and 70s, uh, especially uh, elite intellectuals talking about it. Uh, but, you know, pornography proliferation and those kinds of things. And that's that's in which we live now. I mean, children are just born into this overall oversexed. Um, you have access to pornography in a way that, you know, it's funny because, you know, AFA obviously was on the front lines of the pornography fight back in the 70s and 80s. And even if you remember, the, the uh, Attorney General Meese had that pornography commission in 1986 that looked at the effects of pornography on society. Well, the pornography they were talking about at that point, you either went to a movie theater or you went to a video store or you went to a convenience store and bought a magazine or to an adult bookstore or something. Mm-hmm. Well, now this stuff is available on your phone, on your computer, at the click of a button. You can have access to some of the most heinous and wicked imagery that has ever been <laughs> existed. And children can just go watch it now. And um, so, like, yeah, I mean, the the impact on this is that Children are sexualized younger and younger now, and now they're sexualized with this concept of homosexual uh, activity and identity within it, too. So if they gain some kind of sexual pleasure or satisfaction from looking at two men having sex together, two women having sex together, you know, maybe they're maybe actually they're they're gay and they have to examine that. And their students are students are just kind of given that kind of language and ideas, you know. Mm. Um, just right away. And so, I mean, you could talk for, for days about the, the long-term impact of the sexual revolution on society, but the, the normalizing of homosexuality mm. is a major component of that. I do want to go back to one thing you said and make some connections. We're, what we try to do is inform and encourage believers and equip them with the truth, but help them connect the dots as well. You mentioned population control uh, we think of the modern move. Um, I mean, we think of the World Economic Forum, the globalists, Bill Gates and others who want to reduce the population. We think of climate change activists elevating the planet over human life. Uh, but what does that have in common with the LGBTQ when we know from the biblical worldview children are a blessing? God said, be fruitful and multiply. If you are gay, lesbian, transgender, I mean, up until a few years ago, you could not reproduce, so you have to recruit. But now they can manufacture children through artificial insemination. Your thoughts on that, part of the agenda to eliminate the population, reduce the population, the more gays and lesbians and transgenders we have, the fewer children. Does does this all work to some godless agenda, M.D. Perkins? There's always a godless agenda at work in all of this, and the the, the deal with the children. I mean that that was one of the um, that was one of those natural theology kind of uh, resonant points was that you knew that it was unnatural by the fact that it couldn't reproduce. You know, the two men couldn't bring forth a child, two women together couldn't bring forth a child. Um, obviously, you know, adoption and, and some of these other newer means is able to alleviate that. But there's still this overall recruitment thing that's mm-hmm. happening even within schools and yes. this whole uh, – because there's still this desire to win over that generation and to, to be able – and children aren't seen as a blessing. I'll say it this way. Children aren't seen as a blessing. They're seen as a means of getting what you want of gaining control or being able to manipulate people. And because everyone kind of has this, we all recognize children as being kind of helpless in the middle of this. And so who can control what children are hearing or not hearing and all of this stuff. And so the overall push to just, I don't know, hold up to be able to have unfettered access, to be able to tell children whatever you want. And it's, Basically, there's a sexual desire behind children, too. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of people don't talk about as it relates to the LGBT movement. I'm not saying that everyone who, who calls themselves gay is also a pedophile. But what I am saying is that there is this tendency to go younger and younger yeah. in your sexual proclivities and activities. And that will include children at some point. You know, once you start to talk about these age of consent kinds of things, 
now you are you are going to have to deal with well children are independent sexual beings that was what alfred kinsey was arguing for in 1940s yes um that's that's the, this idea that children have these sexual experiences and have sexual identities that need to be expressed even before they have the language to 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 speak that well you have to give that to them younger and younger and younger so that they can that without the influence of their parents, without the influence of religion, without the influence of conservative kind of uh, binary thinking. And so that's, that's what the move is. It's really to control what children think about, which is what to control what the future generations think about, honestly. Wow. I mean, you know, everything you're saying just really, really rings a bell. And mm-hmm. I think this is incredible commentary on our times. Unfortunately, uh, so is the book, because the fact that this book has a place in our culture, that's alarming enough. But when I think about Romans 1, and I know the church isn't teaching the Bible anymore, so shame on them, <laughs> but Romans 1 um, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I mean, there's it's not just unrighteousness. Yep. They're suppressing the truth. And then when you yes. get down to, that's verse 18, when you get down to 25, it says they exchanged the truth. So that the war, you, David, you're talking about the war that we're in, it's a war for truth, absolutely. Yep. But then it says, uh, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. And I know we can't speculate on where we're at in that barometer, but are we actually seeing that? We don't know if that's a future thing or an ongoing thing. Um, you know, we don't know God's heart to that level, but um, God giving over our culture, isn't that a scary place to be? Well, when you know our history, the way we were founded and the respect for religion, particularly the biblical worldview, MD, we have declined to a point that our grandparents or great grandparents would never even imagine or think that we would have we would be at this place today. Um I just want to mention one thing and, and kind of take the conversation in a different direction based on the uh, hostility toward the biblical worldview. We were mentioning having children and that the LGBTQ movement, that was that's obviously not one of their main goals mm-hmm. is to reproduce. It's not. I remember, I'll never forget, uh, President Obama at the time said if one of his daughters makes a mistake, he doesn't want them punished with a baby. So the mm-hmm. worldview of the left is children are punishment or bad. And God's view, our view of children, is they are a blessing. Um, just your thoughts before we move on. The Bible also describes children as, as um, you know, weapons in the hands of a warrior. And, and part of what God's intention for not only rebuilding society and, and building up, uh, you know, these things, but also it's, it's part of our primary mission field as, as Christian parents is, mm is our children. You know, we, we have the opportunity to love and shepherd them, to teach them the things of the Lord. And obviously they have to, they have to come to those things on their own terms. But uh, the offer of the gospel and the, the reconciliation that's brought through Christ can be brought to bear on your children. And the, the more that we give up those, those tasks and just hand it off to secularists to basically disciple our children. Yep. You know, every time you, you set your children up in front of the television, they're being discipled. And so the call to Christian parents, and I include myself here, too, I've got four children. Um, you know, we have to take that task seriously. Yes. That this is something that God has entrusted to us. If we see children as a blessing, that's just not a, that's not just a de facto, well, children are a good thing. But it's also we want them to be a blessing to society, to the church, to other people, uh, as they continue on after we pass on. So, I mean, and, and that has to be cultivated, and that has to be cultivated through discipleship, through evangelism, through care, and uh, and through setting a godly pattern for them about how, to, how they can understand and interact with the, the things in this fallen world. Amen. We've got a lot of gr- ground to try to regain, if you want to put it in that, those terms, as far as Christians in, in America and the church. But I want to go to a, another logical progression of this what we're seeing, the decline of morality, of biblical morality in America, and that is now open hostility toward Christians and the biblical worldview. Um, over at uh, AFA.net, they just put out a quick report. It said anti-church hostility is on the rise. Well, we have had on, in May, we had on a Julian Appling of Wisconsin Family Council, whose Madison, Wisconsin offices were torched, arsoned, uh, firebombed back in May. They still haven't arrested anybody. 
We've had on uh, Reverend Jim Harden in Buffalo, New York, Compass Care, Pregnancy Center, Pro-Life Center. They were attacked and firebombed. Their offices were. Uh, there is still no arrest. And so Tony Perkins of Family Research Council did a report, releasing a report, showing that there has been a 300% increase in physical attacks on America's churches in the last four years. And he says Christian churches are taking a hit for taking a stand. And I want to get your response to this because we're talking about this this uh, indoctrination, this programming of a movement, an anti-Christian movement, the LGBTQ ideology, and an openness to their lifestyle, their, what, their talking points. And now Christians have been silent for so long, we've let them take power, so to speak, and we shouldn't be surprised. But M.D. Perkins, your thoughts on this report that there is more open hostility toward Christians and actually in churches and pro-life pregnancy centers uh, in the last four years? I think there is definitely open hostility. I mean, we've we've seen that. We've seen the shifts. We've seen the the escalation of the rhetoric increase. You know, several weeks ago, when there was that uh, that shooter who went into that uh, that gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, the moment that I heard that news story, I thought somebody's going to blame Christians because of yep. of Colorado Springs being this hotbed for mm-hmm. um, for Christian ministries going back to the seventies and eighties. And sure enough, you know, within a couple of days, somebody had spray-painted vandalism, you know, calling them bigots on the sign at uh, Focus on the Family there. Yeah. Their, their ministries are headquartered in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. The, the attack didn't have anything to do with Christians or what Christians taught. Right. But that's the connection that people are taught to make now, mm-hmm. is that if you are intolerant, that is, if you hold to a Christian worldview that doesn't think of homosexuality the way that the world does, then you are oppressive, then you are a bigot, then you are hateful, and therefore you need to be stopped and you need to be silenced and you need to be spoken out against. And so we're only going to see an increase in this um, as time goes on. I mean, you remember, it used to be tolerance was the word that was used. Yep. And then, um, you know, word, words like uh, acceptance then became more and then affirming, but now you have to celebrate. Yes. If you're not celebrating it, then you're not seen as participating at all. Tolerance doesn't cut it anymore. Tolerance still allows some form of disagreement between two sides, but there's just a civility between them. Mm-hmm. But once you come to, you have to celebrate this. And when Christians don't, they're going to find themselves more and more on the receiving end of, of some of these hostile treatments. Wow. Uh, we've got a, we're close to wrapping up here the last minute. I just want to share in the conclusion of your book, M.D. Perkins, Dangerous Affirmation, I want to share the last two scriptures on the final pages of your book. Matthew 24, 10 through 13, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then in Hebrews ten thirty nine, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thank you for ending with those thoughts. And there's more to it than that in the book, M.D. Perkins. We appreciate your time and you know continued success on the book. And have a Merry Christmas, brother. Thank you, David and Mary. Wonderful to talk with you all today. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, it was a blessing. All right, friends, a heavy topic, but we've got to start standing up for the truth, right, openly in culture. Tomorrow, Jim Fletcher will be on. Mayor, what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about the influence of evolution on the church, awesome. um, the left infiltrating evangelicalism, and some headlines from Israel. Great. That's tomorrow. Jim Thursday. Fletcher. Thursday. Thursday. Like I said, Thursday. Uh, God bless you, and as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.